Lord, we come to you as your people, established by your Son for your glory. We come in awe and in wonder. We come in openness and surrender. We come in gratitude and in praise. And we say, Lord, we are your church. Build your church. We pray in the name of the one who is the Lord of the church, Jesus Christ. Amen. Good morning, you all, and good morning, beloved kiddos. It's so good to see you all and have you with us. Now's the time for the kids to head off for the program that we have just for you. And as they go, orchestra, you've all cleared out. Well, I was going to thank you. Thank you, Raymond. Appreciate your playing. It was amazing how you did all of that. That was incredible. Pass on the thanks, if you would. Isaiah chapter 51, verse 1. Look to the rock from which you were cut and the quarry from which you were hewn. About four years ago, we replaced our kitchen counters, and we did a lot of looking around to try to find uh, something, and finally we ended up finding a stone slab up in Merrillville. It's a beautiful piece of gray-white granite. I actually have a piece of it up here on the front step because I know that after the service, you're going to want to come up and admire it. Uh, but uh, it's, this, it's a beautiful kind of gray-white stone that's got these really cool rippling uh, gray veins that run through it and then some, uh, also some beautiful spots of burgundy mineral deposits in it. So you know me and my love for rocks. I uh, decided to learn more about this. This is called white spring granite. And I wondered if white spring granite was sort of a, a family of granite, maybe that had some things in common among them. So I began to, to search around on the internet. And, I, and as I did that, this white stone granite popped up all over the country. It was sold in stores in Albuquerque and in Raleigh and in Richmond and Indianapolis and other places. I thought, well, that's interesting that it's such a popular uh, kind of family of stone. But then I began to look at the pictures and see some of the descriptions of what this stone is like. And what I discovered is that they're all describing exactly the same stone. That means that all of these stone slabs are not just a type of granite, but they all come from the same source. Kind of counterintuitive, isn't it? Thank you, the four of you that got that. <laughs> and what I learned about our countertop is that it came from the White Spring Granite Quarry, which is in the Aimores Mountains in the, the southeastern part of Brazil, right near the Atlantic coast. Uh, and uh, it is 5,151 miles from our kitchen. And every single stone cut from that quarry, the one sold in San Francisco and Seattle and Tulsa and Tampa Bay and, and everywhere in between, they all have the same distinctive look and feel, the same quality and texture. They're all recognized as being the same rock because they all come from the same source. You all, you who are members of the Covenant family, you are all wonderfully unique. Each of you distinctive and unique in your own way, and I love that. 
And at the same time, because of what we have in common by virtue of being part of the covenant family, we all have a distinctive quality that reveals the fact that we have all come from the same rock. And in this sermon series, we are wrestling to identify what that certain something is. What makes covenant covenant? The men and women and young people and children of Covenant Church are made distinctive by our beliefs, our calling, our values, and our posture. And over the next four Sundays, we are going to be uh, opening each of those up and exploring them. And this morning, we begin by talking about our bedrock beliefs. Before we talk about what they are, let's just talk for a moment about how we carry our beliefs here at Covenant. I think this is really important. As you probably have discovered in your own reading of the scriptures, however much you've done, the Bible comes to us in lots of different literary forms. Some of it is straightforward history, but some of it comes in the form of song or poetry, some in in terms of proverbial statements. There are prophetic messages that use exaggerated imagery. There are are parables which are made up stories that tell things that are absolutely true. And then there's this collection of letters that are written to specific churches that that are addressing specific questions that they have or or specific concerns that they are uh, facing. It's not arranged at all like a topical encyclopedia where you can flip to the, the part that says, God, nature of, and read about that, or flip to the part that says Holy Spirit and read about that, or the part that says church governance and read that part. So the insights that we have about what is true biblically is they're insights that we have to glean book by book and gather together in a meaningful way. Well, what that means is that some parts of biblical truth, all of the most important parts, are really clearly spelled out. They are echoed throughout the pages of Scripture. But other parts, the less important or more peripheral parts of our beliefs, are are really, um, many of them, less clearly spelled out. And what that means is that those less important or or non-essential parts of our faith, things such as how the sacraments of communion or baptism should be administered, or how church government should be structured, or how exactly the end times will unfold, or how to engage the various structures of our culture, or what are the implications of Christian faith for things like politics and economics, or what should be the appropriate Christian response to a global pandemic. In these and other non-essential areas, there is not consensus, and in fact, there's actually pretty considerable disagreement. We are part of a denomination that has a wonderful motto that goes all the way back to the time of the Reformation, and I think it captures beautifully the spirit of how we do things around here at Covenant. And that is, in essentials, unity. In non-essentials, liberty or freedom. And in all things, charity, which is the old-fashioned word for love. In those handful of areas that we identify as our essential beliefs, we want to be characterized by unity and by a strength of conviction. But we want to demonstrate that strength without stridency. To have a commitment to truth that is unbudging without being hard-edged or dogmatic or self-righteous. I think that this would be a good place 
For an aside about a comment you may have heard me make several times over the past year and a half, that I believe God wants us to become um, known as a church more for our love than for anything else. By that, I never intended to say that we are softening our commitment to truth. Not at all. Only that in our dealings with the world, we want to have a soft touch as we speak the truth, to speak the truth in love. So, in essentials, unity. And in those areas that we identify as non-essentials, we want to hold our convictions with what one biblical scholar referred to as biblical or as theological modesty, with a humility of heart that recognizes that there are others who love Jesus more than we do and who study the scriptures more carefully than we have, who've come out in a different place than we have on some of these issues. That doesn't mean that we shrug our shoulders and say, oh, well, guess we'll never know. We're still called to be faithful, to do our homework, and to arrive at our convictions in all of those areas of our faith. But we will do that in a way that acknowledges that others may arrive to a different conclusion than we have. In essentials, unity. In non-essentials, freedom. And in all things, love. One implication to just point out here, and and I'm guessing that many of you are ahead of me on this one and are recognizing, making this connection as well. There is always a temptation for every one of us to elevate a non-essential to the level of an essential. And then to insist on unity in the church family. To insist that everyone else in the church see that issue in the same way that you see it. And then even sometimes the temptation plays out in a temptation to condemn those who don't see these things in the way that we do as being less spiritually mature or less biblically faithful than we are. But that's not how we do it at Covenant. In essentials, unity. In non-essentials, freedom. And in all things, love. We believe that our shared commitment to Jesus as king and to scripture as our final authority and to the church as a community of affection and as a mission agency in the world, we believe that our commitment to those essentials is sufficient to keep us united even in the face of considerable differences of opinion in non-essential faith areas. So with that as our backdrop, and an important one, I think, let's come back to the question of our bedrock beliefs. So let me ask you this. If you were asked to come up with a list of the essential beliefs of our faith as Christians, what would be on your list? What would you include on a list of the things that every Christian should agree on? The things that we want to live for and the things that we want to stand for, what would be on that list? Well, about 15 years ago, we were led to identify what we consider to be our essential beliefs the core faith convictions that we think of as being non-negotiable, beliefs that we believe are so important, so crucial, so central, that we think that they should define us. And here's what we came up with. Now, this is not meant to be a comprehensive list of every, every detailed piece of doctrine that we think of as essential, but to identify the three core sets of convictions that we believe should be all of ours as followers of Christ. 
We believe Jesus Christ alone is King of kings and Lord of lords. We believe the Bible is trustworthy and authoritative, and we believe the church exists to proclaim and to live out the love of God. So before we go on and explore each of these, just think with me for a moment about the significance of this word belief. Christianity is often lumped together with Judaism and Islam and Buddhism and Hinduism and other uh, belief systems under a category that is titled world religions. But among Christians, it is our practice to speak of Christianity not as a religion, but as a faith, and it is a really important distinction. The word religion means scrupulous observance. Religion is an impersonal word that has to do with satisfying rules and fulfilling stipulations. A religious life is a life lived according to a code. But the word faith focuses on a relationship between two people, not between a person and a set of rules. Yes, it is true that as followers of Christ, part of Christian belief is confidence that certain things are true. God exists eternally in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. God created everything from nothing. All human beings will stand before God to answer for our lives. Jesus will return and usher in a new heaven and a new earth, and so on. But belief is not just a list of truths that we are confident in affirming. Belief is a deeply relational word, and it implies belief in a person, putting our confidence or trust in a person. And at the heart of the Christian faith is the invitation for us to put our trust in Jesus as the one who rescues us from our sin and purchases our lives for God. And our belief in Jesus, our trusting him, is always meant to include one further step for all of us. Not just confidence, but allegiance. Not just trusting him, but entrusting our lives to him as Lord, as the king of all created existence. Do you trust him? And have you entrusted your life to him? Our first and most important faith essential is we believe Jesus Christ alone is King of Kings and Lord of Lords. We believe that Jesus is the long-awaited and long-promised king, and that in Jesus all the promises and purposes of God are fulfilled. We believe that before he became a human being, Jesus was the eternal son of God, the second person in the Trinity, and that in obedience to God and out of his own love for us, he left his father's side and he came to earth on a rescue mission, which was to reconcile humanity to God. He took on human flesh and lived among us, revealing God to us, he took on human sin and he died for us, reconciling us to God. And then having defeated sin and death, he rose from the dead and he ascended to heaven where he now rules over us as king. 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 6, there is but one God, the Father, from whom all things came and for whom we live. And there is but one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom all things came and through whom we live. Jesus is the Lord over the church and he is the only way to know God the Father. Jesus himself said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Given who he has revealed himself to be, 
given what he has done on our behalf, the right and responsible and reasonable response to his invitation is for us to trust Jesus as Savior and to entrust our lives to Jesus as Lord and King. Romans chapter 10, verse 9, if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord. And if you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. So let me just pause here. If those things are true, then what are the implications for each of us individually? And what are the implications for us together as a church family? I hope that those are questions that you will continue to ponder. What would be on your list of essentials? And what are the implications of those things for the way that we live out our life together as a church family? I'd love it if that was part of what informed your conversation uh, after services ended and we lingered together with one another. So here are a few of the things that come to my mind. And I'd love it uh, to have the chance to hear some of the ones that come to yours. So what are the implications for each of us individually? Here are two. First, the single most important decision in my life will relate to who Jesus is and what that means for me. That is more important than what I study, more important than where I work, more important than who I marry, because my deepest spiritual need, which is my alienation from God, the God for whom I was created to be in relationship with, that deepest spiritual need can only be met in Jesus. He alone can rescue me into a reconciled relationship with God. And I am called to respond to him with faith, with belief, with, with confidence, with trust in order to receive the gift of his presence and his work in my life. Here's another implication. As a Christian, I am called to understand myself as a subject of Jesus the King, which means surrendering my rights and my freedoms and letting him rule my life. What he says goes. So once I make the decision to trust Jesus, God's invitation is for me to turn around and make sure that every part of my life is open, fully open to him and reflects his place as king in my life. The way I spend my time, the way I spend my money, the shape of the morals that define me and so on. What are the implications for us together? Here are two that come to mind. Our whole life as a church is centered on Jesus Christ. He stands at the absolute center of everything we believe and do as a church. And Jesus is the one thing that we have in common at Covenant. He has called us together as a diverse group of men and women of different ages and different genders, young people from this city, from this country, from around the globe, all of us, this diverse gathering, gathered together around himself. And he and he alone is our unity and our peace. One other implication, because Jesus stands at the absolute center of the Christian faith, we want to provide a wide open welcome to you here, and we want the only thing that you bump into to be him. You will never stop hearing about him at this church because he is the defining center of every aspect of the Christian life. The Christian life means following Jesus. The goal of Christian maturity is becoming like Jesus. The end of our hope is going to be with Jesus for eternity. The essence of Christian leadership is leading as we are led by Jesus. And our final source of authority as Christians is Jesus. What he says goes. 
Jesus has the last word. We believe that Jesus Christ alone is King of kings and Lord of lords. Our second faith essential spills straight out of that last implication that we were just talking about. If Jesus is Lord, and if what he says goes, then that means Jesus has the last word in my life. And during his earthly ministry, Jesus repeatedly affirmed the authority of the scriptures, of the Bible, as the authoritative word of God. For example, in Matthew, 20, uh, Matthew chapter 22, verse 29, Jesus is speaking with some of the people who oppose him in his teaching, and he says, you are in error because you do not know the scriptures or the power of God. You may have noticed this, but this is fascinating. When Jesus quoted the scriptures, which he does constantly, he uses the expression, it says, and the Bible says, interchangeably with the expression, he says, and God says. Scripture is God's word. That leads to the second faith essential for us here at Covenant. We believe that the Bible is trustworthy and authoritative for us as Christians. God's word in its particulars, as well as in its principles, is a uniquely authoritative witness to the Lord Jesus Christ and to the life that he has for us, and it is trustworthy in its entirety. The scriptures expose the darkness of our sin. They reveal for us the hope of our redemption through Jesus, and they present God's intended way for us to live. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17, Paul writes, all scripture is God-breathed, and it's useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that each person who belongs to God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. In other words, the Bible makes clear what we should believe, and it corrects mistaken beliefs, and the Bible also spells out the way that we should live, and it brings all the parts of our life in line with God's design. So when it comes to what is true about God and what is true about us and what is true about the life God intends for us, we don't need to guess. The Bible makes those things clear for us. We believe that the Bible is trustworthy and authoritative. So what are the implications of that for us individually and for us at Covenant Church as a church? First, the implications for each of us, the implications for me. God has made known to us through, through his word, spiritual truths that we can never learn by just observing the world and human history. So I am called as a follower of Jesus to immerse myself in God's word, not just to dabble in it, but to immerse myself in it, to learn it, to know it, to make it mine, to plant it in my heart so that in the hands of the spirit of God, it can be part of the way that God grows me into Christ-likeness. Another implication. In a world that offers many different alternative versions of truth and truthiness, I can turn to the Bible with confidence that in its pages, I don't have man's best guesses, but I have God's revealed truth. God has not told us everything that there is to know about him, but God has told us all that we need to know about him in order to love and to serve him. We are not agnostics saying that we have no sure knowledge of what is true about God, but neither are we Gnostics, believing that we have all there is to know about God's secret knowledge of the things that are true about God. In the Bible, God has spoken plainly and sufficiently to humanity. And as Christians, we are confident that God, by his spirit, has spoken through his word, and he has faithfully preserved that word for our use, and we have in scripture sufficient knowledge to know God 
and to serve him. One other implication for us as individuals, our claim that we have God's truth, which the world sees as evidence of spiritual arrogance and pride, is actually reason for us as followers of Christ to have profound gratitude and humility that God would entrust that gift to us. What are the implications for us? Here are two. We take the Bible really seriously at this church. It ultimately forms the basis of every one of our conversations as the people of God. Preaching, scripture study, teaching, biblical memorization, biblical integration, they are all central to our life as a church. And another implication, it is not our work to stand over scripture and to decide which portions of it remain valid today. It is all valid today, and it is our work to understand it and to stand under it, not to stand over it in scrutiny. We won't wrestle with which parts of the scripture are still, still speaking with authority today. It all is. We will wrestle with what it means to take the scripture seriously. We believe the Bible is trustworthy and authoritative. I pointed out that our second faith essential is a direct result of the first one. We look to the Bible as our final spiritual authority because Jesus, our Lord, has the last word in our lives and he teaches us to use the scriptures in that way. Our third essential is likewise a direct result of the first one. If Jesus is Lord and I am his subject, then I am part of a new community that is made up of the rest of those who follow Jesus as Lord. My fellow followers of Christ are now my brothers and sisters in a community that we call the church. We believe that the church exists to proclaim and to live out the love of God. Jesus is king. He reigns over his creation. And the kingdom of God exists wherever that reign of Jesus is recognized and acknowledged. And it spreads through this world one heart at a time as individual men and women and young people and children give their hearts and their lives to him. The church is a colony of the kingdom in this world. The church exists to proclaim and echo the love of God in Jesus Christ. It never stops being his or doing his work. It comes together as a community of affection united in its shared love for Jesus and it goes out as a mission outpost united in its shared call to demonstrate the love of Jesus. At the end of Revelation, uh, this, this uh, passage of scripture, Revelation verses four, one, uh, four through seven, it says, Jesus loves us and he has freed us from our sins by his blood and he has made us to be a kingdom and priests to serve his father to whom be glory and power forever. The local church is a foretaste of the new humanity envisioned in Revelation chapter 7, verse 9. The worldwide gathering of Christians in local congregations in which God is worshipped and the word of God is taught and the gifts of God are expressed and the people of God are strengthened, equipping them to go out with grace and power into this world as kingdom agents and instruments, putting the love and presence of God on display that is God's design. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. 
You are a chosen people. A royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness and into his wonderful light. The church is God's community of affection and mission agency in this world. What are the implications of that for each of us individually? There's a lot of murmuring these days about the institutional church and its shortcomings, which can lead us to think that a version of the Christian life in which I shop churches for what I want and what I feel I need, and I, or I just live the Christian life independent of the church, there is a message that says that is a sufficient way to live the Christian life, but it is not. The solo version of the Christian life is not a biblically recognizable one. I am part of something larger, and so are you. What are the implications for us together here at Covenant? God wants us to see our spending time together, building relationships, doing life together, using our gifts to serve each other, to see that that is not optional. Making room, taking time for the shared part of the Christian life is as important as our daily quiet times. Fellowship is an indispensable part of the Christian life, as indispensable as worship, discipleship, and mission. God also wants us to see that the ways that we are stretched by being together with one another, with people who are not identical to us in age or stage of life, people who may be difficult for us, people who may be different from us in terms of age or gender or ethnicity or, or, or background or life experience, to recognize that that is a gift that God gives us for our sanctifying good, helping to form all of us together more and more into the likeness of Christ. And a final implication, God wants us to understand that the church exists for its scattered life of mission every, but, every bit as much as it exists for its gathered life of worship and fellowship and discipleship. Mission is vital because we believe that the world around us is in great spiritual jeopardy. Those who have not trusted Jesus and entrusted their lives to him are alienated from God now, and when death comes, they will be permanently alienated from him. Our witness to the presence and the power of Jesus in our lives is a crucial part of what will catch the eye of a jaded world and awaken its heart to hope. We believe that the church exists to proclaim and to live out the love of God. Jesus Christ is the cornerstone of this church. The church stands on and orients itself to and is defined by him. He is the quarry from which we are all cut. He is the rock from which we find our origin as living stones in Christ. And everything that makes us who we are can ultimately be traced back to him. Would you pray with me? I love the wonder, Lord, of what we've been reflecting on in your word today. That you call us to gaze on you and to see in Jesus the beauty of our Savior, our Lord, our King. 
And then to turn and look at us and to see how it is your design that we as your people would reflect his beauty. Lord, make us your bride beautiful in the way that Jesus, your son, is beautiful. We are your church, Lord. Build your church.